Without further ado, I just would like to um, just introduce Kent Martin to you. Um, Kent Martin is one of the directors of Battelle International, a missions organization and ministry that builds sustainable and diverse Christian communities comprised of marginalized people and people recovering from various forms of substance abuse. Um, Battelle began in Spain almost 30 years ago and today um, can be found, uh, its communities can be found in over 100 urban areas in about 22 nations um, and really epitomizing ministry across the street and across the globe. Batal International has planted a Batal South Africa ministry and it is also one of our partner ministries. Um, Ken travels all over the world and ministers to, to restore broken lives and he's also on the board of Batal South Africa and a genuine friend of this house with which we've journeyed for, for many years. Kent is, a, is the co-founder and director of Batal UK and a former journalist from Pennsylvania, USA. And as a missionary with uh, the World Evangelical Council um, International in Spain and England, um, he's been part of that since 1991. And the Martins moved to Birmingham to pioneer Batal's work in Great Britain in 1996 after taking up God's call on their lives um, and where they planted a church among addicted and homeless men and women and their families. And Batal UK has 11 residences um, nationally, and they host about 400 recovering men and women off the streets and out of prison, completely free of charge. So that's quite, a, it's quite an amazing miracle. And Batal is an effective and sustainable Christian charity or actually church plant movement and community dedicated to harmonizing residential living and charitable businesses to help drug and alcohol dependent people transform their lives based on Christian faith and a strong work ethic. Um, Batal residences worldwide host free of charge some 2,500 men and women in over 100 cities in 22 countries, including our South Africa center north of Pretoria, founded here eight years ago. So the Martins also have two grown children. Um, I know them personally, Ian and Trish, both are married and serving in full-time ministry as well. And so, Kent, I just really want to welcome you up tonight and thank you so much for what the Lord's laid on your heart. And if I can just encourage you just to be open, just to say, Lord, my heart is open. The soil is ready. Let your word be sown into my life and just to receive it there. So, yeah, welcome. Thank you for being with us tonight. Good evening, everybody. Well, Garth, that was the perfect metaphor, in fact, Prophetically, on my heart, I heard the Lord say, uh, heaven comes in seed form. And that what God's going to do is plant some seeds tonight. They're, some are going to germinate spontaneously because of where you're at right now in life. And others, it may take years till they come to fruition. And the meaning of what I speak tonight actually begins to bear fruit in your own life. But the Lord's in charge of that. And uh, so I've, I've great hope what God wants to speak to hearts tonight. Uh, Garth mentioned that both of our children in full-time ministry, in fact, we owe a debt to love, of love to Hatfield because they both attended Year of Your Life here. Um, and yeah, in, in their late teens, and uh, now they've gone on, you know, just about 10 years later or so, they've gone on to, to serve, both to be serving the Lord. I'm re really grateful for that. Uh, when I was in, well, not much younger than many of the faces I see here tonight, uh, in my teen years, God spoke to me very clearly alongside a riverbank in Columbia, South America, that I was going to help desperate people somewhere in the world. 
I was going to learn Spanish, and that I would live out of America most of my life. And with those words, I began to pursue the Lord. And lo and behold, 17 years later of a lot of character refining, church planning, and God dealing with my life as a journalist, and the Lord finally sent us abroad. And uh, my family lived and worked in Spain for five years. And then God surprised us and asked us to take uh, Betel, which is Spanish for Bethel, take Betel and plant it in the UK. So I want to give you a little bit of context for what I'm going to preach in describing a little bit more about Patel, how we work. Um, I've got Roy and Anna here with us tonight who are the directors of our Patel work here in South Africa. Roy is going to share just a couple minutes of, of his life. But there should be a, yeah, there's the picture uh, of where we're distributed around the nations, very diverse cultures and economies from Mongolia to Latin America to South Africa and throughout Europe. Uh, if you can go to the next one, please. Um, and we're helping very marginalized people. Most of our people have been 10, 20 years longer on drugs, alcohol, in and out of prison, very broken, chaotic lives. They keep going. And just a few pictures of people because they're the most dramatic evidence of the power of the gospel and how it can transform people. People coming off the streets in Britain in, in a tremendous mess uh, are coming out of prison. This girl was actually living on the rubbish tip in Spain. It was rescued. She's now married and uh, living in Malaga, Spain, doing well. This girl is South African, wandering through Britain, found one of our flyers. She's now married to a former heroin addict from uh, Northern Ireland, and they're both doing well and serving with us in Scotland now. Uh, this girl, I took the picture on the right, in India. She's now in university somewhere in Delhi. Next, thanks. This fellow was living in, in garbage dumpsters, bins, out, out behind supermarkets, and uh, God's totally transformed. He and his wife now help serve and co-direct our work in Manchester. And Timon, 20 years, a heroin addict, and now he's our public relations director for Patel all over the country. <laughs> he's got an amazing testimony. So with that, you know what I'm going to do? Just before I finish up about Patel and get into the Word, I'm going to ask Roy to come and, and just let him share a little bit of his life. Well, it's a great blessing and an honor to be here. And, uh, well, my name's Roy, I come from Doncaster, it's a place in South Yorkshire, in the north of England. Come on! <laughs> and uh, from a young age, I started to make lots of very bad decisions, friendships, you know, getting involved in things. Started using drugs at nine years old. Uh, within a few months, I was selling drugs because I couldn't afford to pay for what I was doing. Got involved in organised crime. By the time I was... Early teens, I was involved in a lot of bad stuff, you know, not really caring about waking up the next day, live for the moment, all that stuff. A few years went by, just about everybody I knew died or was killed. And I desperately wanted help, but you don't know a way out when you're in that scene. And uh, so, five years moving around different cities, different things. You know, you're chasing an answer to get out of what you've managed to get yourself into. And um, I ended up on the street, lost everything, lost my family, lost my self-respect, lost everything. You know, you end up suicidal. You're not interested in even living. And um, a friend of my mum actually came and found me on the street with a flyer for Battelle. And I remember she gave me the flyer 
And that night, I was like a... I knew that I needed to call. And I made the call to Battelle. And I remember clearly, you know, the guy who interviewed me was from Northern Ireland. Tough character. And he said to me from the beginning, he said... Are you just messing around? Are you just one of those ones that's going to mess around or you really want it? You want to change? And I remember straight there and then thinking, I do want to change. You know, this, this is my last chance. <laughs> I got nothing. And I remember the next day I was in Battelle. And from, there was myself, one other guy, and then another guy from my generation of people from where I came from, and everyone else was dead. I remember I came to Battelle in 2003. The other guy who was still alive, he got 96 years in prison. And the other guy got nine years. And I never forget because I think, God, why, why did you spare me? And everyone else never made it. And I never really realized until I'd been in Battelle that people were praying for me even from when I was a little boy. And I honestly believe that's the only thing that kept me alive through all those years of just ridiculous nonsense. And after I'd been two years in Battelle, God audibly spoke to me and told me that I was free of heroin. And I remember just feeling that freedom and that, that liberation. And things started to make sense that I realized that God had spared me to be in Battelle to, to minister to other men, to testify of just how good he is, how amazing he is. And you know, I don't regret any of that stuff now because I know that God is using it for his glory. And, and that is, it's all glory, all honor, all praise to God. God is amazing. Battelle is just an incredible place where you've got loads of, of really messy people been perfected by God, and uh, it, it, it is, it's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Roy. Very proud of these guys leaving uh, the UK and coming down here to serve uh, some of the most desperate here in South Africa. So continue to align yourselves with them, continue to pray for them. Uh, we have an internship program where people can come anywhere from three months to a year or two and, and actually live with our men and women and, and learn how we do what we do. So I want to open that up to you, welcome you looking it up at, uh, uh, online at, on, our, on our website, patel.uk. But we'd love to have some more people come and actually learn to serve in Battelle. And who knows, God might even call you to come back to South, South Africa and help here. So um, that's available. Let's just, the last couple of pictures here I want to show you. Um, Patel is really three main components. We build churches. We build residential communities to help stabilize very chaotic lives. And we develop businesses, social enterprises. So they, those help fund the majority of Patel's uh, operating expenses. And it teaches people a work ethic. Most of them have been on some kind of welfare benefit in Europe for maybe much of their lives. And everything we do is free of charge. We don't get any government money. We don't get any external uh, funding other than occasional gifts and helps from churches and individuals. But, uh, and so in that sense, Battelle, those three components are harmonized 
so that the gospel can really take root in people's lives over a season, a long season in their lives. And let me tell you, the gospel works. And uh, we don't have to develop a rehab. The gospel rehabilitates people. Soak them long enough in the power of the Holy Spirit and people are changed. And that's the truth. Uh, so you saw that we do furniture. We do a lot of, with furniture restoration, we do, right there, we do a lot of landscape gardening, uh, garden transformations all over the country. Next one, we do tree surgery. So we're teaching all these men and women to be involved in this. And we also run three different restaurants in the UK. I think that's next. So we have a restaurant in Coventry Cathedral, one of the preeminent relics of World War II that was bombed. And uh, they op opened up uh, their cafe space for us to run a restaurant. And then last year, we had an amazing opportunity. We had a call from Kensington Palace. And you can go to the next one. We had a visit from uh, Prince William and Kate who'd heard about us, wanted to get to know Battelle, and actually came and met with our men and women, sat with them about a half hour, heard their stories, heard about what God had done in their lives, heard about the change and the transformation happening. And uh, it was one of the most intense, nerve-wracking days of my life. But it was absolutely tremendous. So God's doing amazing things beyond what any of us deserve, believe me. So thank the Lord for what he's doing. That's a little kind of snapshot, a little whistle-stop tour of Battelle. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to read from Genesis 22. The leadership here asked that I share tonight what I've shared uh, this morning elsewhere. And uh, Father, we ask you to give your word penetration in our lives tonight. Help us just listen patiently. And Lord, would you expose those areas of our heart that need your word, that need faith, that need fresh truth to press into your, your purposes for us. Father, we ask it and we welcome you in Jesus' name. Today's message I've entitled, Look Up, Risk More, and Sacrifice All. It's about Abraham's ascent of Mount Moriah. So, we're going to refer to this passage as the climb of faith. That's what our lives is, like a climb of faith. And for Abraham, it was a few days event. But for us, it's a lifelong matter, isn't it? Lifelong. So the first point is we learn the climb of faith leads to greater risk in life. So let's read verses 1 to 4 of Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham God called, yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. And then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. At more than 100 years old, God tested Abraham. And that test meant he had to climb a mountain. And that was a mountain he, in his wildest dreams, never anticipated climbing. It was going to cost him like never before in his life. And I, it was something he hardly could have prepared for in life, right? What was at stake? Only his single dearest promise for which he'd waited his entire life, his young son. 
Now imagine that three-day hike from, to Mount Moriah. He knows what's await him, what, what awaits him, what he's been asked to do. That must have felt like years for a father. Because if Abraham is going to obey, there is no possibility of not taking the risk that Isaac's going to die on that mountain. That's the test. And so, faced with what you and I also know by experience, there are no risk-free tests of faith in life. There are no risk-free tests of faith. I've told you a little bit about Patel ministry. One of the most robust features about Patel as an expression of church is the life of faith that we live. Because it it requires risk, not like an occasional adventure for us. It is the way we live with the people we help. It's a way of life. And here's what that means personally for us. My family left America almost 28 years ago. Uh, and after five years serving in Spain, uh, we arrived to Pioneer Patel in the UK in 1996. Just a few of us, a handful of us, in a huge Cadbury-owned property. You know the chocolate people, Cadbury in the south side of Birmingham. And two of them were uh, recovered Spanish heroin addicts who didn't speak a word of English. And that's about all we had when we arrived there. And 23 years later, just to give you a sense of scale of our growth to God's glory, um, our fleet now numbers 120 vehicles, commercial vehicles and cars. It was mentioned we've got 11 large leased furniture shops, 13 residences, housing nearly 400 recovering men and women free of charge in 11 urban areas around the UK. We're paying down 11 mortgages now. We have retail stock upwards worth of 15 million rand. And 90% of everything, maybe more, 95% of everything is run by recovering addicts. 70% with criminal records, and I can definitely count on a few fingers those who have a university degree and maybe a couple of hands, those who even graduated high school. In secular terms, the people that we're helping are, well, they're hopelessly unemployable. Living on government welfare benefits to the tune of billions of rand every, every year around the UK. And we're one of the few charities, in fact, I only know of one other, housing and helping the addicted who don't totally rely on some external funding like government. We're, we're not getting anything. How do we do it? How do we let hopelessly unemployable people run businesses that are turning over now about 100 million rand a year in the, in the UK? And in a phrase, Battelle pushes out the boundaries of faith by taking great risks with very risky people. That's the truth. And taking those risks, when we do, it releases incredible potential in people who otherwise rarely have an opportunity to change in their lives. So over time, the great benefit of living as we, as we still do nurtures a deeper divine de dependence in our lives. I've learned over the years that what we do in Battelle stirs faith. So I fed a, felt a prophetic challenge as I was preparing to come here. My first challenge is some of us, and there could be many of us here tonight, you need to hear that to keep growing in faith, to keep pressing into God from your younger age, for the years ahead, for the long run of what God wants to accomplish in your life, just as we sang tonight, 
You need to hear that to keep growing in faith, it is no longer optional to hide behind fear and avoid new risks in your life. Imagine Abraham. God and his word brought him an unimaginable challenge. But with fire and wood and knife in hand, he obeyed at great risk, didn't he? Centuries later, you see Peter stepping right through fear out onto a stormy sea, don't you? In his case, faith wasn't paralyzed by the risk of waves thrashing around outside the boat. Or did he not know that by the laws of gravity, they govern the sinking of a body in water? The key was this. Faith just needs one word inside the boat to achieve the impossible. Some of us need to hear today, get ready to give God a challenge in a new situation in your life. It requires you shouting, perhaps, into the storm, like Peter did, Lord, if it's you out there, bid me come. And you know, serving and taking the risks we do in Batel has really helped me to discover a power, rediscover a powerful truth in my own life. The truth that thrust Peter that day from the only place of safety around him out under the water. And it's this. Listen, with one word from the master, you have permission to act recklessly. If you get one word from the master, you have supernatural permission to act recklessly. One of the boldest, most dramatic miracles of the New Testament happened because Peter took the risk, didn't he? He shouted through his fear, and just one word came back through the howling winds over the waves, and it was, come. That's all Jesus said. One word. And if Peter had hesitated, what about, what if he had given into fear or doubt? If it had paralyzed him, he might have missed the opportunity of a lifetime. You can miss it, you know. He did it once, and he's the only one who's ever done it since. <laughs> but he did it. You know, looking back at Abraham, he was not forced to climb that mountain that day. He could have let emotion and fear overwhelm him, all the, the fears and emotions of a father. Or what if you'd been his wife, Sarah? What do you think, ladies? Think maybe she thought, you're going where to do what? She might have thought he was just acting a little bit recklessly. She's kind of strangely silent in the whole story here. But you know what? We can all find good reasons to cuddle and protect our promised Isaacs right where we are, right where you're seated tonight. Everybody's going to have reasons. But God forbid. To conclude this first point, in my experience, there's a moment in every crisis that I faced when faith for overcoming a situation is conceived, it's born. There's a moment that that happens. And in this case, I believe the moment that overcoming faith is born occurs in a curious phrase in verse 4. It tells us, on the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up. Now somehow, as I read that, I don't think we are meant to just read that only literally, as though he's walking the whole time with his head down, and suddenly one day he looks up, and there's a huge mountain looming before him. You see, here by the Spirit tonight, I hear more when I hear those words. Some versions say, in other words, he lifted his eyes. 
As his eyes met that mountain on that, the beginning of that third day, the great object of the test was before him. And you know what I believe happened? His faith shifted gears. I'm convinced it's no coincidence that the very next verse, verse 5, Abraham declares remarkable faith-filled words to his servants. The boy and I will go up to worship and return to you again. Tremendous words of faith. You see, destiny pivots between verses 4 and 5. And I think why we read of no struggle of obedience to surrender Isaac at the top of the mountain, it's because Abraham had already done so by the time he reached the bottom. It was done. Isaac was surrendered. His faith shifted up. So you see, the real problem is I don't know what you all are facing in your life now. I just know that life's pretty much the same for everybody. But the problem isn't so much the mountain you're facing, it's where your eyes are fixed upon. Maybe you've got a whole mountain range. <laughs> Feels like you've got a whole mountain range looming before you in your life right now. But what has God said to you? Have you heard? Look up with eyes of faith. Invite God to set the bar of risk a notch or two higher for you. And you know what? Then you don't give him rest until you have his word. What's not an option is that you shrink back and play it safe. You want to go, with, go on with God, you cannot shrink back and play it safe. You know, for decades, something that's always kept us looking up and always keeps us aiming higher, despite this constant tension between trust and risk. You know, my kids grew up, and some people thought we were crazy, living in a residence with 45 recovering heroin addicts and alcoholics. They became my children's best friend. There was a lot of tension between risk and trust, let me tell you. But something we would quote to ourselves all the time is, attempt something so great for God that without him it will fail. Will you, and many of you have many years ahead of you to do it, will you attempt something so great for God that without him it will fail. And if for no other reason than Jesus said, it's to my Father's glory you bear much fruit in your life. So you see, to me, that alone tells me all I need to know. Being satisfied where you are right now with the fruit level in your life, with the fruit level in our ministry, or the ministry you know, in, in, uh, in Hatfield, it's not enough. It's not acceptable. Let's bring great fruit to the glory of the Father with our lives. Yes? Amen? So look up. Look up. Shift your eyes uh, of faith higher today. That climb of risk is going to lead to greater, or the climb of faith is going to lead to greater risk. But get ready. Point two is that the climb of faith also leads to greater sacrifice. Let's read verses five to eight. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We had the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. In Arbatel churches, Anyone who visits us, if you get a chance to come, either as an intern or a visit, visitor to Britain, by all means come 
visit us. People will tell you when they come to our church, they love to worship. We had great worship tonight. Our people love to worship. It's been such a dynamic transformation in their life that, you know, they love worshiping God for the hope and the sense of future. And it's, it's, it's great to worship with our people. And right now in our church in Birmingham, we've got a couple of worship bands. Most of the musicians are recovering addicts taught from scratch. And uh, the sound is improving. We're doing all the latest songs, you know. Um, and... Uh, we teach classes of sound mixing. We've got creative workshops going. We're teaching them instruments, songwriting, dance, drama. We've got a real thrust on the arts amongst our people. But if I asked all of our men and women to give me synonyms to describe the word worship, you would hear every point I just mentioned. But I doubt you'd ever hear the word sacrifice. If you did, I guarantee you'd be the last word on their list. Now, you've got to remember, maybe many of you know this, that verse 5 is the first mention of the word worship in Scripture. First, first mention of worship is verse 5. And you, this is pre-Moses, pre-Mosaic history. So what does that mean? There's no Jewish law. There's no tabernacle. There's no ark. There's no psalms. Immediately before Abraham enters the Bible narrative in chapter 12 of Genesis, You've got the Tower of Babel, you've got Noah, and that's a pretty bleak landscape of pre-flood history all the way back to Adam and Eve. In other words, in almost every aspect we identify in this passage, Abraham is breaking new ground. He's setting precedence for all of Scripture and all of us ever since. Now, worship means a lot of things to all of us, and justifiably just as we did tonight. Worship, it's where we experience every week God's comfort, the strength that comes from his word, the fellowship of the saints. But you know what? At its core, reading this passage, it becomes evident. You know what? It's very easy to romanticize it all. The fact is, from our earliest record, worship is gritty. It's gutsy. It's costly. It's sacrifice, pure and simple. By the measure of this passage, worship means learning to obey God in the extreme, in the completely unexpected. That's what Abraham's facing when his purposes so cut across your will, the circumstances seem to contradict everything he's promised you. And you're tempted to question God's character itself. Sacrifice, of course, comes in countless forms. And I want to let you tell, you tell you a personal experience of mine. The Lord unexpectedly showed me about sacrifice and worship through my own father. He was one of the founding elders of our church in, in Pennsylvania. Very pastoral. This was nearly 40 years ago. Still beloved amongst those who remember him. But he died very gradually over 12 years of a degenerative brain disease that started just three years into the church's life. And so the church was growing, and he was slowly dying. And the painful struggle of trusting God between 1983 and 1995 for me, it produced in me the deepest revelation of my life so far. And I think how that happened was, back when my dad was healthy, the church was young, I was a new believer, and I got it. I understood the discipleship principle. 
that in order to leave the world behind and follow him, Jesus commanded, I seek the kingdom of God first with my life. That I choose to sacrifice my plans, my possessions, my career, even my family and the altar of trust, like becoming a missionary. But until my dad's decline, never before had I faced Abraham's predicament. When someone I loved was tied to the altar against their will and against my will, that's a very different circumstance. And when God was slow to explain himself as if he had to at all, suddenly I felt very betrayed. Sound familiar at all? My deep disappointment, and don't think you can't go here, my deep disappointment became lethally faith-threatening in my life. In those times, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's possible for trust to be tested more deeply. And Abraham was facing something similar. You see, Isaac became the archetype of that second altar. In a literal sense, he was the scripture's first depiction of a living sacrifice, wasn't he? Abraham was scripture's first person to face it. And quite profoundly, he called that sacrifice worship. Now, my dad was ultimately delivered, as Isaac was. He's free. He's now among the righteous spirits made perfect, as Hebrews puts it. Uh, and during his parting years, if I'm honest, his worship seemed purposeless. Has that ever happened to you? His worship, what he was facing, seemed purposeless. But I want to tell you the truth. With time, his suffering couldn't have meant more to me. And I'm going to describe it to you very briefly. By the end, by the time my dad had passed, we were just missionaries in Spain, and I wrestled and, and I embraced this trial. I found that my experience of God began to change. Somehow I, I knew God more deeply, but not cognitively, not in a cerebral sense of knowing, but rather the knowing produced by that prolonged struggle in my life and everybody's facing something like that. The fruit of that prolonged struggle was a firmer grasp of faith, an effortless trust in me. I found I knew God in a way I can only describe as possessing a greater tolerance for mystery in my life. He no longer needed to explain himself. The lingering demand inside me to understand why, it just vanished. How many in your circumstances are struggling, you don't have to raise your hand, but struggling with the question why? It's universal. But you know, after many years struggling with it, through this season, I realize that why is probably the question God's least likely to answer in life. Think about it. After all of Job's suffering, questioning God, the Lord revealed himself in the storm, didn't he? In the whirlwind. Job repented saying, Oh, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you and I repent in dust and ashes. But God never explained himself, did he? Never explained himself, never answered why. Jesus cries out from the cross, David's cry from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence from heaven. What's settled in my heart is all I know, brothers and sisters, one day when our faith is made sight, you and I are going to fall on our knees 
and our need to know why will no longer matter. All things will become plain to us. You know what? Here's what I imagine. I suspect we'll fall on our knees and with our hearts full of all of life's unanswered questions, we'll only have three words to say. You know what they are? You were right. <laughs> That's it. You were right. I couldn't see it. I didn't understand it in the pain and the confusion at the time. But you are vindicated. You are good in all you do in all your ways. You know, as my father's life faded after 12 years of struggle, this newfound greater tolerance of mystery inside me meant I could trust him in all things. No questions asked. And I've now walked nearly 25 years cherishing that revelation since my dad's death. That's been a powerful thing in my life. In this life, my father never got to experience the good result that his suffering wrought in my life. And I thank him for it now. Because, you know, he taught me how my embracing of sacrifice as a principle of worship in all of its forms, it not only deepens my trust in God, but it serves to enrich others' lives. His life poured out on that altar is still enriching me long beyond the grieving and the events themselves. And it it impacted me to a death I never imagined possible. You've probably heard said, while so many of God's gracious gifts are free, maturity is always expensive. It's coming. <laughs> it's always expensive. So the climb of faith leads to greater risk. It will lead to greater sacrifice. And finally, praise the Lord, the climb of faith also leads to greater reward. So let's read verses 9 to 14 as our last set of verses. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its, thorns, uh, by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, or we say in English Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, it's easy for us to forget, reading this condensed history here, that as Abraham walked towards Mount Moriah, with the mountain and the cost of his obedience looming ever larger before him, he only had the word of God to go up the mountain, but not to come back down with Isaac, did he? So one of the things we marvel at in this passage is how, with only the command of God to slay his son, could Abraham say he and the boy would return and worship, uh, worship in return? Or say to his son, well, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And imagine, in the next verse, he's tying his son to that very altar. Well, thank God. Thousands of years later, we've got the writer of Hebrews giving us the answer. In Hebrews 11, we read, Abraham was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac, 
is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. You see, here's another amazing precedent set in this passage. Because this amazing response reflects a faith so mature beyond the revelation of Abraham's time. He believed the unheard of. Abraham foresaw resurrection in his heart before it was ever penned in scripture or suggested anywhere. It's incredible. But it doesn't stop there. I've been describing risk and sacrifice at length. But you see, in the last, these last verses, we need to grasp how radical the climax of this encounter is if we're to appreciate the beauty and the richness of its outcome, how it applies to our lives. Abraham, we know as the father of faith, had trusted God before, of course, hadn't he? Under some pretty severe conditions. Remember decades earlier what he had done. He had left the Ur of the Chaldees with his family in obedience to God. And it says he wandered with his family like a nomad for years in the foreign desert land. Who's up for that? <laughs> That's quite a trial. Quite a step of faith. And then at 75 years old, God promised him a long-desired son. And the fulfillment of that promise took another 75 or 25 years. He's having Isaac at 100. But this revelation at Mount Moriah was different. The lesson carried a different price tag than to those previous faith-building experiences in his life. And what a moment in verse 10. Here's that most, one of the most dramatic in Scripture in my mind. Abraham raises the knife above, above Isaac to slay him. And Scripture reveals in that moment, he passed the test. The Lord spoke, now I know that you truly fear God, for you have not withheld from me your only son. In other words, here's what God was producing through this. And I'm, my prayer coming from afar to be with you was that the seed sown, even through tonight, will sow hope into your own life, perhaps for the present circumstances or the long marathon ahead most of us here in life. God will produce his purposes in our lives. In that moment, Abraham's priorities were proven perfect. That, to me, is a beautiful thing. That is, Isaac and the promise were God's, not his, case closed. That was it. And though he passed the test, we need to see there's something crucial. Abraham not only received his son back that day, but the very nature of worship itself was redefined and very boldly illustrated. I think it helps to see this. You see, worship was turned inside out from something that previously to this point had always been outside in. What do I mean? You see, prior to Genesis 22, sacrifice to Yahweh, and there are a few examples in the Old Testament, it was customarily rendered through what? Animals, right? Now, as meaningful as that practice was, by definition, what happens? Because, of the, because it's rendered through animals, worship is primarily an external, impersonal practice. Make sense? But for the first time in Mount Moriah, you know what happens? Worship doesn't cost the animal everything. It's going to cost Abraham everything. That's a big difference. It's going to cost Abraham someone he held dearer than his own life. 
And would he, did he really fear and love God above all else? And the answer was a resounding yes. But you know what? It goes deeper. The unique, this unique encounter with God is a seminal moment. It's, it's just a one-of-a-kind moment in history. Because right here in the extreme heat, right as Abraham's lifting that knife and, and God sees his heart, right in the heat of that crucible of faith, the first and greatest commandment that we all know is forged. Love for God with all the human heart, with all the mind, with the soul and strength becomes the measure of true worship from that day forward for all of the rest of us. And at the end of that painful, traumatizing ordeal, the name that Abraham attributed to his experience of God that day symbolized, I think, the deepest revelation of his life to that point. This is amazing. Some commentators, including John Wesley, believe that the Hebrews suggest God may have even physically appeared to Abraham, a tremendous reward of faith, appeared to him as never before. It was so unique, in fact, nobody else in Scripture ever owned as Abraham owned so personally the name he attributed to God that day. He immortalized it. We all know it. He immortalized that encounter for all time, naming the place Jehovah, my provider. Because you know what? Until you live it, no one can declare that name with the same kind of relief and gratitude Abraham did. Nobody. Now, perhaps you're like me, guys. For many years, my experience of worship as a young believer and growing in Christ was essentially limited to church attendance, maybe my quiet times, occasional concert we went to. A good time worship meant we sang the songs I liked best, we lingered in the presence of the Lord, the preacher was good. But you know, I don't know about you, sooner or later, I longed for more of God. I longed for more. There had to be much more depth in this. Do you? I long for more. And if our relationship is going to deepen with him, I found the climb of faith will inevitably lead us to a different quality of worship in our lives. The kind that Abraham first pioneered. So don't miss the real point of the test tonight. Our willingness, your willingness to say, Lord, I'll risk and I'll sacrifice. It's absolutely necessary. But God was never going to let Isaac die at Abraham's hand on Mount Moriah. The real point was to teach Abraham, Isaac, every one of us here, that some of life's most profound encounters with God, if you want to lay claim to new experiences of his name and his loving character, they often occur when his purpose contradicts our every expectation of him. That's what happened to him. When his God's greater purpose offends your natural mind and your understanding. But nonetheless, like Abraham, you worship. I choose to worship. I mean, in those times for me, when I have felt trapped in the will of God, when something's tied to the altar that I don't want there, anybody have that in their life? But I cry Father, my love for you is unconditional. It's not based on when and what I choose to place on the altar. But like Abraham, with knife in hand, at the cost of my dreams, at the cost of the promise I'm living for, Lord, I will trust you.
Are you there yet in your heart? I will trust you. God, I will trust you. Somehow, one day, you will resurrect anything you ask me to let die. You know what? In essence, in summary, all of Abraham's actions that day can be summarized. Lord, I will honor you with my deepest trust proven in my deepest sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, take courage. Take hope today. Because you know what? The rewards for trusting God like that are remarkable. They're even immeasurable. I think the band, if, if you guys are coming back up, you may, and I'll, I'll just close uh, here. I'm convinced, and hear this for your own life and circumstances. Hear this with faith for your future. Whatever God might ask of you, wherever he might take you, whatever sacrifices lie before you in the years ahead, I'm convinced that no matter how desperate the sacrifice he requires of you, no matter the mystery you're experiencing right now in your circumstances, God will in turn reveal something marvelous of himself. That's what we all want, isn't it? Trust him in your sacrifice. Trust him in your worship to reveal himself. And you know how he'll do it? In a manner uniquely personal to you. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. That might come as a divine, he might come as a divine delivery, your own intimate supernatural experience of Jehovah provider. Or you know what? It might be something simple but life-changing as knowing deep inside you a greater tolerance for mystery, an effortless, an effortless trust of whatever God asks. You know, I say, whatever it takes, Lord, whatever my heart needs to keep a firm grasp on eternal life and a deepening trust in you, I'm game. <laughs> I want your best at any cost. Let's stand together. I'm just going to say a prayer and turn it back over to the team here and ask you to close your eyes with me. If anything's touched your heart, stirred faith in you, just stretch out your hands and surrender to the Lord afresh tonight. Father, who among us doesn't want to see you supernaturally provide? We all want, Lord, the reward of a richer revelation of Jehovah provider, Father. But it's reserved for those who sustain the lifelong climb of faith who will trust you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight and pray with them, Lord, that we look up, that we lift our faith and our spiritual vision to a higher place tonight. Set our aim higher, Father. To the Father's glory, may we bear more and much fruit. Set our aim on new targets of faith. Hear that phrase, to attempt something so great for God with my life that without you, Lord, it'll fail. Lord, help us risk more to, to hear your word clearly and then get out from behind our fear to no longer hesitate. Brothers and sisters, know with the word of the Lord, just one, you have permission to be reckless. And finally, Father, teach us to sacrifice all. Yeah, I, I know the Holy Spirit 
how he pinpoints those areas we're holding back from the Father. Where, where are you holding back tonight? Lord, our prayer is like Abraham, I trust you to resurrect in your timing, Lord, to your glory, whatever you ask me to tie to that altar. Whatever God's asking you, whatever he may ask you to tie to the altar, decide tonight, I want your best at any cost, Lord. I trust you to resurrect in your time into your glory, whatever ask you ask me to tie there. Father, we thank you for your ways with us. They're beyond tracing out, and yet you reveal, you unveil yourself. That mystery of Christ within us, we thank you tonight with all our hearts, Jesus. We are yours. Amen. As you stand there, I just see this image that the Word of God has been sown. And if you can cup your hand like this and just hold it in front of you, the Word is in the form of a seed in your hand. Your responsibility is to tend to that seed. It's to water that seed. Not to walk out of the door and drop the seed on the floor and continue with whatever it is that you are planning to do, but it's to take that seed. It's your responsibility to nurture it. You can't make it grow. You can't make it germinate. But if you don't water that seed, if you don't tend to that seed, you don't give God the opportunity to make it germinate. So I don't know what he said to you tonight. I've written my word on my hand, the thing that jumped out, the thing that caught me where I'm at as I, as I was sitting in my chair. And maybe it's just that one word. Maybe it's a sentence. Maybe it's these points, these three points. I don't know what he said to you, but he's given you that seed. And somewhere, somehow we've all taken a multivitamin or a headache tablet or something like that. And I wanna, I wanna put it forward to you. If you want to take God at His word, put the seed in your mouth, swallow it, ingest it, and tend to it. As you walk out of these doors, make a commitment to tend to that seed, the word that the Lord is, has given to you to sow into your life. And I leave, the seed is in your hands. <laughs> it's in your hands. Ken, thank you so much for what you've shared with us today. Thank you for traveling across the globe to be with us. We appreciate you. We pray that the Lord would just re literally return to you what you have sown in our lives. I pray that you would be refreshed. I pray that your health would be upheld. I pray that you would return safely home to your family and loved ones and to the community that sent you to come and bless us. The part of the body of Christ on the northern side of the globe, we bless you from the southern side of the globe. And as the band continues, and as we bring the service to a close today, there's a prophetic action that awaits you who have pledged tonight. As you travel through the doors and head through to the zone, 
you'll find that there's two maps on either side of the main stage in the main auditorium. Underneath the maps, there's small stickers like this on which you can write your name. You don't have to. And just perhaps there's a nation or a people group or a region that the Lord has laid on your heart or has been speaking to you about or journeying, you, journeying with you. And just as a prophetic action, just stick it there. Maybe that's where you believe your pledge money is going to be sown. I don't know. But it's just a prophetic action to do that as the Lord lays it on your heart. And just a reminder then to head through to the zone, meet new people, connect with the people that you know. On your way, have a look at the missionary exhibits. Connect with them. See, what, see some of the work that they're doing. Listen to what they, some of the things that they are busy with. They're on either side of the auditorium. Volunteers are also going to show you guys the way if you're not sure. And then also the host table is also in the zone if you want to get more info about young adults, about Hatfield, about being part of this body. And just in terms of closing the service, if you feel there's something you just want to wrestle through, there's prayer available in the front. Just come forward and, and, and conclude something with the Lord. As Ken said, and that's what I wrote, don't give him rest until you have his word. Oh, that's for me. I'm going to swallow that seed tonight. So Father, we thank you for who you are. There is no one like you. It's you and you alone. And we just thank you that you are here with us. We thank you for what you are trying to do in our lives and let us not hinder you. Let us not use fear as an excuse not to be obedient. Do within us. I give you permission. And I trust there are those among us that give you permission and say, Lord, lead us into true worship. So I pray that as we leave this venue, help us to nurture that seed. Thank you for those who have pledged according to your promise. Protect us, keep us, make your face shine upon us so that we can reflect it to all those who will cross our paths tonight, tomorrow morning, all the way till we gather again next Sunday so that we can accurately and authentically express your image and not switch it on and off when we feel like it or when we don't. We surrender to you. Have your way in our lives. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.